Welcome to the Explore Words Discover World podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, we travel from an Indian palace to the Australian outback with author and academic Lynn Innes. In her book, The Last Prince of Bengal, Lynn shares the incredible true story of her royal ancestor, Nawab Nazim, and his family's journey from Indian riches to relative anonymity, hosted by Bengal born poet and writer Bashabi Fraser. This eye opening conversation spans the extremes of British rule and prejudice, detailing how Lynn's ancestors navigated key moments in history. Recorded live at the 2022 Bradford Literature Festival, exploring the fascinating journey of the last Prince of Bengal together. It's a great pleasure to welcome Professor Catherine Lynn Innes today, an internationally renowned postcolonial scholar and writer whose many books, and I'm just going to mention a few, The Cambridge Introduction to Postcolonial Literatures in English, A History of Black and Asian Writing in Britain, 1700 to 2000, Woman and Nation in Irish Literature and Society, 1880 to 1935, Chinua Achebe, Ned Kelly, all illustrate, and these are just a few, the breadth of your scholarship, Lynn. Lynn is a true transnational citizen and scholar whose life and work span the globe, from Australia to North America, as she embraces Asia, Africa, the Caribbean, Britain, and Ireland. Lynn Innes, is Professor Emerita of Postcolonial Literatures, University of Kent, Canterbury, and has been on the board of the Postcolonial Journal, Wasafiri, since 1984. And she is the author of The Last Prince of Bengal, a family's journey from an Indian palace to the Australian outback. And I hope you will all buy the book. I have read it and it's wonderful. It's captivating, it's accessible, it's actually unputdownable. So I am Bashabi Fraser, Professor Emerita of English and Creative Writing and Director of the Scottish Centre of Tagore Studies, Edinburgh Napier University. So I will be chairing the session, uh, which will consist of an interview with Lynn. Uh, and after about half an hour of questions and answers, I will request Lynn to read from her book and then we'll open it up to questions and comments from the audience. So thank you for coming. I will actually start, Lynn, with a question that is not about the book which we will be discussing today, but one which I'm sure the audience will be interested in. You have worked with the great Nigerian writer, Chinua Achebe, at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, and was associate editor of the journal he founded, Okike, an African journal of new writing. You have co-edited two volumes of African short stories with him and even wrote a, written a book on him, on his work. Would you like to share the experience of your intellectual association with Chinua Achebe with us? And has it had any influence on your own thinking and writing as a renowned post-colonial scholar? Well, well, thank you, Vashabi, for that, those very kind words about my book and also 
about me, and I'm very honored to be discussing it with you, whose work I admire so much. So, um, yes, I, I regard my, first of all, reading of Chinua Atrevi's first novel, Things Fall Apart, and, and then meeting him and getting to know him as absolute turning points in my career. I began thinking that I was going to focus on um, old Icelandic sagas as my topic, <laughs> my PhD topic. And I taught in um, Tuskegee Institute in America in the 60s, which was a, a black, predominantly black college. And Chinua, um, I read the literature that the students were very keen to read, and Chinua Rachabi came then as a spokesman for the Biafran side of the war. Um, but what, um, I suppose, what his novel introduced me to was, as well as the experience of teaching at Tuskegee, was suddenly realizing how it was to be viewed from another perspective. Um, I was one of the very few white teachers in an all-black college, so suddenly to be in a minority and being defined by other people was and, and being not the norm was, was a very, very valuable experience. And of course, Atchaby's novels also conveyed that experience. And also, for me, um, suggest there, there were novels which explored the, the issue of language, the issue of how to tell a story, how to tell a story from, in a way that was different from the ways in which the European novel focused. And it, and it was, at the same time, both in profound and very accessible. So for me, it was, a, it was a very exciting find. And then I managed to get a job where he was teaching at the University of Massachusetts and work with him. And um, that was a wonderful experience, because he was the most lovely, tolerant, <laughs> and, and um, enjoyable man um, to know. So, so yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, that's fascinating. I think it's quite a privilege to, you know, that the two of you came together for the scholarship you produced together. Yes. So thank you very much, the grand old man of post-colonial <laughs> literature. Uh, and you are the granddaughter of Nawab Nizam Manzoor Ali Khan, not the cricketer, by the way. The Nawab himself of the Bengal province, which comprised of Bengal, Bihar, and Orissa which is more than triple the size of the United Kingdom. When, you f when were you first aware of your royal ancestry, and what led you to research and write your family history? Well, again, um, I suppose when I was about five years old, I became aware that um, my mother's father was Indian. Um, I, I grew up on a very remote Australian farm, sheep farm. <laughs> um, and um, we, we um, at the time, Australia had what was called the White Australia Policy, which meant that, in fact, Asians or Indians were not supposed to be living in Australia. So, in fact, it was um, an identity that we did not discuss in the family, which we were told not to discuss. Um, and it was only when I was, went to school at the age of 10, really, that having been homeschooled, 
that um, I found that, in fact, the local school children referred to my <clears throat> grandparents as the Black Prince and the Black Princess, um, which obviously was something of a surprise to me. But, but so, so um, the question of how people identified me, <laughs> how I was to identify myself, um, became at that point an issue. Was I Australian? Was I Indian? What was I, you know? And, and why was it that Australians couldn't somehow reconcile the fact that I was both Indian and of English and Scottish descent and Australian? Why was this not possible? So for me, that whole um, growing up experience was something that was crucial. And, um, but it was, I suppose, gradually in my teens, my, my great aunt, my grandfather's sister, began to write to us from, from um, Bengal. And um, that began to open up a whole new world to me. Um, and, um, but it was really only when I came to England and, and pretty much after I retired that I began to really research my ancestral past and, and be able to get to know a little bit more about it. I think um, you've done some meticulous research for this book. Mm -hmm. Looking into archival material, governmental documents, familial material, how did you manage to get hold of all this information? And how long did it take you to put it all together in this rather engaging narrative? Um, well, uh, I suppose, I mean, I. There were family narratives which often proved to be totally exaggerated or, or totally untrue, um, which became starting points which I had to unravel. Um, but there were, um, but it was really the, the India office and the British, the East India Company, the British government, kept this incredible um, close eye on the, the family. Uh, on on all the all the Indian royal families, in fact, because they saw them as a threat, and they and or they saw them as possible allies. So so, for instance, um, when my great grandfather became um, the Nawab, as the ruler of the area, he was only eight years old, and the Governor General in Calcutta sent instructions to the British agent who was posted there to keep a diary noting every sing single tray, <laughs> every, everything about his character, good or bad, um, what, what is theirs, and also the British took over his education completely, um, insisted that he learn English, for instance, whereas Persian had always been the court language. Um, so, so and, and as a result, in the India office, and then now in the British Library, were at least t um, 12 huge boxes of documents documenting you know, his child's education, his life, the letters to and fro from, from the various British agents and, and from him to them, and so on. So there was a lot of material. Um, you could find out about 
of course, the problem was it was their point of view, the British point of view, and very rarely did I actually get the point of view from the other side, and often you had to read between the lines in order to get that. But so, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think you read between the lines very well, Lynn. Thank you. Uh, bringing out the actual story. Mm -hmm. um, I actually found some of the early chapters about the whittling away of the Nawab's position and property mm -hmm. by the East India Company and later by the Raj quite painful to read, as it showed how vast swathes of land, monetary assets, and valuable family heirlooms such as jewelry and other artifacts were siphoned off through agents who were appointed to manage the Nawab's estate, which you've just spoken about. Some of these men were trusted by the Nawab, and he suffered their betrayal through clever robbery and the transfer of assets of personal gains for personal gains. So how did these findings affect you as a great-granddaughter and a post-colonial scholar as you compile the evidence for this book? Um, it's, it's a very complicated question because um, I have to say, first of all, um, that I'm not, I'm not a royalist. <laughs> and, so, and also, was my great-grandfather and, and his ancestors collaborated with the British so, you know, and at that time, of course, it, India, nationalism was not really an issue in India. People saw themselves as belonging to specific states rather than the continent as a whole. But nevertheless, he collaborated with the British. He supported them in what was called the, the what the British called the mutiny. Um, and so I, I did have and continue to have quite ambivalent feelings about him, but at the same time, I was appalled at the sheer, um, I suppose, brutality <laughs> and and corruptness of of the British, in in you know, whom I suppose I had somehow wanted to believe that at least they might have had good intentions. You know, uh, they might have thought they were doing good, but you know, the, the, just the sheer um, ripping off. <laughs> was was something that surprised me and mm -hmm. and astonished me and of course is part of, a part of the story of British Empire which is generally not acknowledged um, I think so yeah but I think you've been very balanced in your <laughs> perspective and analysis uh, the Nawab Nazim of the vast Bengal province um, you know he he was his title was whittled away just as his uh, property was, till he became merely the Nawab of Mushidabad, which is just one district. Yet he fought with his British masters all his life to retain his ancestral claim to his royal dignity in India and later in England, mm -hmm. till the very end. Would you like to describe what reads like a story of attrition in your book? Um, yes. Um, I mean, as some of you may know, um, originally... The East India Company um, appointed Mir Jaffa, who collaborated with, with them to, to overthrow the then ruling uh, Nawab, mm, who, who was a pretty, a pretty terrible character, <laughs> I have to say, but nevertheless. Mm. Um, and, and when they did so, it was the promise was that, that Mir Jaffa and his descendants, who would be the Nawabs and would receive a particular um, pension 
in return for the East India Company having the rights to taxation and trade and so on, mm -hmm. um, and also large sums of money. Now that that pension over the over my great grandfather was eight generations or eight nawabs beyond. When um, each time a new nawab was appointed, often because they were minors, because the, the people um, they lived quite short lives. Um, the, the East India Company agents would say, well, they're minors, they don't need that much pension, and it would be reduced and never restored again. So by the time my great-grandfather had become Nawab, it was about one-tenth of the original promise. And in addition to that, uh, in addition to that, this particular agent um, persuaded him, he was only 16 at the time, to invest something like 2,000 rupees in a particular company in Calcutta. And when this man died, it turned out that he had siphoned off all the money, along with a whole lot of the family jewels, which turned out to be in the possession of his mistress. And um, so, so um, there was this constant um, thing. And, and um, Governor General Dalhousie, who was then whose policy was to try and get rid of the princes, um, also was, was extremely unwilling to hear any kind of complaint mm -hmm. uh, about it and was looking for ways of, of essentially getting rid of, of the, uh, the, the royal families of, of India. Well, now I would like to come to your great-grandmother, mm -hmm. uh, Sarah Venel, mm -hmm. uh, from a humble background, whom the Nawab fell in love with, but actually married in a proper nikah marriage, a permanent marriage. And uh, uh, he, uh, there was a legal document that was signed up under Sarah's initiative that he would take care of all of the children. Now, Sarah was quite a determined young lady. She struggled all her life to establish her royal affiliation and the claims of her children. Uh, I think she was a loyal daughter, a dedicated sibling, and a devoted mother. Yet her children were taken away from her. And she never saw her daughters again mm -hmm. when they were sent to Murshidabad, both Miriam, and I think you spoke about Vehudun Nessa, who yeah. wrote regularly, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, her, and then she lost her youngest brother, George, who was her staunch mm -hmm. supporter. So she, uh, she, but she faced the ingrained class prejudices of Britain, British society, who were quick to disparage her claims to her, um, uh, to her uh, uh, assertions that she had this royal marriage, uh, but also cast aspersions on her character. Would you say that what you have done is retrieved the dignity of Sarah, which she deserved in her lifetime, and the legacy she guarded so jealously for her children and well, grandchildren. Well, um, I'd like to think I'd like to think I had. I one of one of the difficulties, and this has a lot to do with class differences. Although you know there was there were daily reports in the newspapers of when when the Nawab came to England. He came in 1869. He didn't leave till 1881. Mm -hmm. He stayed in London and was married to Sarah for um, for just over 10 years. But um, so, so the newspapers have all, had 
constant reports of him being at this soiree, this the Queen, Queen Victoria's receptions. She never appears anywhere. Mm -hmm. And this was partly because she was a Muslim wife and the Nawab didn't normally take his wives to, to events, but mostly because she was of working class, very poor working class background and would not be received by the aristocracy in England. And in turn, she was, she was only 17 when she married the Nawab. Um, they had six children together. When, um, when the British decided they wanted to get rid of the Nawab and, and um, take away his title, one of the reasons they used was that he had married a woman, quote, of low extraction and did not live as a, as a, um, as a Mohammedan nobleman should. So, and, and moreover, he lived in a suburb on, in London, <laughs> which seemed to have been one of the <laughs> worst things he'd done. So, um, so her class was, was held very much against her and against him. Um, now, um, when he, he, he then took up with another maid at the end of the 10 years, went back to India with the four surviving children, and she sued for custody. And in order, to, at that time, if a woman's, if a marriage was illegitimate, the woman could claim custody of the children. If it was legitimate, the father had the right to the children. So Sarah decided to, um, and this was you know, a huge thing to decide because respectability was very important to her. Mm. Um, so she decided to claim the marriage was not legitimate. It also meant that she would not have any claim to you know, the pension, the rights that the other wives of the Nawab would have. But in fact, the English courts, the judges, decided against her and said the marriage was legitimate and she had no right to the children. Um, so, um, to uh, briefly, the, when the Nawab died in 1884, he wished that the sons be sent back to England to, to receive an English education and a good Mohammedan education, as he put it, he used those words. And, um, but the girls stayed in India and, and never, never left India. Um, in fact, she did, Sarah did once, twice, actually go to visit them in India. And I think the girls decided not to come back, partly mm -hmm. because they had, they were, you know, they were cherished. They were, they had now become, in their view, Indian. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and they were cherished by their grandmother there. They were, had become Urdu speakers. And I think, you know, returning to England didn't attract them at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so that's uh, their uh, their story. Yes. Mm -hmm. well, thank you. I was now going to come to um, Sarah's son Nusrat Ali Khan, yeah, yes. who is your great uh, uh, My grandfather, grandfather yes. and uh, her, his wife, mm -hmm. uh, who uh, who was um, Alice uh, uh, Alger. Uh, and uh, your mother, Miriam? 
Miriam, yes. who carried both your grandmother and your uh, grandfather's name, Sarah Mirza. And um, I wondered if you could share with the audience the tensions between Nusrat uh, and his wife, because while he found mm -hmm. the whole uh, princely lineage uh, quite a burden, he mm -hmm. always wanted to get away from it. He was a great farmer, wasn't he? I mean, whatever <laughs> he did, he, he could renovate, he could cultivate, mm -hmm. he was, you know, qu quite, a, quite a pioneer mm -hmm. in that sense. And, uh, uh, and his wife was a wonderful writer, journalist as well. And, but she was the one who pursued the title, wanted it to be publicly uh, acclaimed. So um, would you like to show how the two of them were very different and how their two attitudes to life, one wanting to move away from the princely mm -hmm. lineage and one wanting to claim it, and how it affected the family in Australia. You've already spoken about how difficult it was, I mean, for them to migrate at a time when there were no uh, non-white settlers. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, yes, my, my um, grandfather knew it. Um, I, I think um, both he and his brother went to Oxford. Um, they, they weren't very serious <laughs> students. They had a good time at Oxford, but um, I, I, think, I think my grand, grandmother was you know, quite excited by the idea of marrying a prince that he actually wanted to be an artist. Um, he also played the banjo, and which is very touching, and um, wrote a little bit. But but his his desire was was to be an artist, to be anonymous, and and um, he 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 was quite quite a good artist actually. They they went to Jamaica and he did some paintings there, which he. He uh, donated to the National Art Gallery in Jamaica, and one of the great things about researching the book was discovering those paintings by him. Um, and um, whereas um, she just adored being a princess, and you know she would go to the sports events and present prizes and and um, patronize this, that, and the other thing. They, they, they went to Paris to study art, um, and again, I think he particularly liked Paris and was setting up a business there because there were lots and lots of, it was a very cosmopolitan time in the, in the first mm -hmm. decades of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Lots of people from India, from Russia, from Germany, and lots of, you know, sort of ex-nobility were around all, all in a sense, seeking to be somebody else. Mm -hmm. so, um, so Paris was the place he really would have liked to have stayed, and, but then World War I broke out mm -hmm. and they had to leave in a big hurry. Um, eventually, he decided, or they decided, to emigrate to Australia. Um, and he wanted, he, he wanted to change his name, to lose the title, to become anonymous, and mm -hmm. um, and he wanted his children likewise, not to to, to change their names, which they did. Um, and um, whereas my my grandmother sort of still received letters and published under the name of Princess Newsret Ali Mirza, mm -hmm. um, which her publishers, of course, quite liked because it was <laughs> it it did create an interest in her books. Mm. Uh, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it was quite an epic journey for them. Yes. You know, London, Paris, before that India, the Caribbean, and then the Austra- uh, Australian outback. Yours has been an epic journey too, hasn't it? <laughs> and so uh, I think you've answered one of my questions, so I'll come to the last question because I, we would like Lynn to read from her wonderful book so that you will go and buy it. So your father, and this is your Scottish connection, isn't yes, it? Yes. Was Ian Troop Innes, who married Nusrat and Elisa's daughter Miriam. The choice of his surname, Innes, was a conscious one. All through this fascinating intercontinental transnational family history, and you're a transnational yourself, Names, titles, the choices made by individuals and ruling powers to change, adopt, or keep them, all tells a story of historical adjustments that led, that had to be made to assert each individual's identity. Would you say that in spite of the travels, uh, travails that beset the last Prince of Bengal and his family, he, had prev- he has prevailed, as you have endorsed his tenacity and that of his successors in this wonderfully narrated story of a checkered family history that really needed to be told. Um, well, thank you. Thank you. In a way, I suppose I don't, I don't feel I have reinstated the Nawab. Um, I feel his story remains something of a tragedy. Um, on the other hand, you know, his, his great-grandson did become the first president of Pakistan. The family has not disappeared, but they have, in a sense, their status has been greatly diminished. But it is, I think, a story which is not uncommon. It's a a story of migrants. And, you know, if you look at migrants to America, to England, the changing of names and the taking on of a new identity, I was very struck by the earlier talk about William Rothenstein and his story, you know, his, his family's story here in Bradford. Um, and of course, he didn't change his name, but nevertheless, that sense of, of making a new identity, traveling to a new place, becoming somebody else. Mm-hmm. And my, my uncle, my mother's brother, uh, it, it always amused me, he, was, you know, he started off as Said Ali Mirza. His, he, when he was sent to school at Harrow. His name was changed to Savile um, Allen Moston, and that was the name under which his passport to Australia was. But very soon after he got to Australia, he changed his name from Savile to Stan (laughs) and and became a a second-hand car salesman, which was, um, but, so, so that's, changing of names and the desire to sort of somehow fit in and become an, a, a new kind of person is, is certainly... Whereas the Nawab wanted to remain the person he had been born as and was desperate to preserve his family's status and I think lost that... that, that I do think you've vindicated <laughs> his case very well. Uh-huh. And would you now like to read yes, sec- uh, okay. sections from your book? I will. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I thought I would read um, a passage from um, just after, starts just after 1858, when the Nawab is in um, slightly better favor 
and a new um, a new British agent has been appointed to you know their job was to to really control the the um, uh, no, and this new agent was his name was Colin McKenzie. He had been fought in the Afghan war and he took great pride in wearing Afghan um, um, costumes and he has you know a, a big a British British a Scottish guy a, a big portrait of himself you know in Afghan costume it was it was something that the British liked some British liked to do uh, in there anyway um, his wife uh, writes about their time in in um, Murshidabad, and it gives quite an interesting glimpse of of the Nawab's life with his wife and children. His first wife, Shamsi Jahan Begum, whose marriage with the Nawab had been arranged by the British, um, was aristocratic and pretty, but according to Helen Mackenzie, exceedingly bland. While his second wife. Malika Uzamani Begum appeared to be quite sickly. Neither wife was able or willing to make any conversation with the agent's wife, nor it appeared with the Nawab. They were, he told Helen Mackenzie, equal in rank and in his affection, except that the first had precedence, but they were not accustomed to speaking before superiors such as his sisters, his mother, or himself. He wished they would talk to him as English ladies do. The children were more lively, although very well behaved. All were overseen by Darab Ali Khan, an 80-year-old eunuch originally from Africa. The Nawab's pleasure in the company of English ladies who would talk to him is glimpsed in another episode that Helen Mackenzie recounts. During a long safari, the Nawab refrained from hunting on a Friday being, according to her, exceedingly strict in observing the, the Muslim Sabbath, and so spent most of the day teaching her to play chess as they sat on the floor of her carpeted tent. Mansur Ali Khan went to considerable trouble and expense to entertain and please the British officials stationed near Mashidabad, and not just through hunting parties. On the festival of Bera, which is a, a Hindi festival, um, a Hindi Bengali festival, which takes place in the autumn on the banks of the Bhagarita River to honor the river god. The Nawab gave a dinner party and watched and conversed as the Christians ate at his table before all adjourned to watch a magnificent display of fireworks and illuminations. As Helen Mackenzie recalls the scene, it was a clear, still, dark night. A beautiful illumination like a fort was on the opposite bank of the river. And when the bearer, the procession of rafts of all sides, made of plantain stems supported on earthen pots, came floating down the river bearing ships, castles, and palaces traced in colored fire, some of them throwing up rockets as they passed, with other tiny ones like fiery swans. The effect was magical. There were also musical evenings with performances of ghazals by professional male and female singers, and ragas played on sitars accompanied by intricate rhythms on the tabla. The Nawab and his courtiers would become immersed in the music, sometimes joining in the well-known ghazals or murmuring wah wah in appreciation. 
Hill and Mackenzie makes it clear that for Europeans like herself, these long sessions with the intricate but rep repetitive dances, stylized expressions and endless variations seemed interminable. It was with difficulty that they stifled yawns or giggles before leaving as soon as they could without giving offense. As a break from their day-to-day -day duties, the Mackenzies and other Britons preferred pig and tiger hunts. For these, the Noah provided 40 or more elephants for the participants to make their journeys, as well as tents and provisions for eight or more days and multitudes of attendants. The elephants would advance in a line, wading across patches of mud, then swaying over the rough, hard ground beyond before crashing through the thick and tangled mess, mass of vegetation. On such occasions, instead of his usual plain white tunic, Mansur Ali Khan donned a green silk coat and white muslin skull cap. He also wore his gold-rimmed spectacles, but upside down, as this apparently made it easier for shooting. And indeed, he proved himself to be a crack shot. On one occasion, killing in one day a brace of partridges, several deer, and two boars as, as the line advanced, in addition to a tigress and one of her cubs. But in 1861, the relationship between Colin Mackenzie and the Nawab turned sour, partly over the issue of who should control the Nawab's finances. Mackenzie thought highly of the Dewan Raja Deb, a Hindu Bengali. However, Mansur Ali Khan began to feel that the Dewan was not handling his affairs well, and given his disastrous experience with Torrens, the previous relationship, the close relationship between the British agent and the Dewan increased his uneasiness. Further annoyed by what he regarded as impudence and lack of due respect, Mansur Ali Khan dismissed Raja Deb from his position and declared that the affairs should from now on be handled by his two oldest sons. Mackenzie insisted that the Nawab had no power to dismiss the Dewan, that's the financial minister, without the consent of the British authorities and that he was acting in defiance of the British government. In reply, the Nawab claimed that the Dewan was insolent, incompetent, and subordinate, insubordinate, and alleged that he was misusing funds. The British agent then refused to pay the Nawab's stipend, declaring that only the Dewan could authorize the payment. Mackenzie's letters to the Nawab at this point became both blunt and threatening. The apparently cordial relationship and show of respect for Nawab were revealed to have been merely a very thin veneer covering intense contempt and overt racism. Mackenzie wrote, but my office here is not only to protect the interests of the Nizamat, but also by advice and by other means, if necessary, to keep you, the Rais, and the inferior members of your family, male and female, from committing gross errors and follies alike injurious to yourselves and scandalous to the eyes of the British government, who protect you, and without those whose protection and favor, your family would, in very short time, principally through the utter absence in themselves of true dignity, common sense, and honorable principles of action, fall into ruin and be followed up, swallowed up by the population of the city of Murshidabad, who are notoriously the scum and refuse of Bengal. After this extraordinary diatribe, combining outright insult and blatant threat, Mackenzie went on to mention gossip in the bazaar about the Nawab's disreputable behavior, and particularly warned him, 
it remains to be seen what view the Supreme Government will take of your having put yourselves so put yourselves so completely with the hands of your mother. He also reminded the Nawab that the agent carried the full authority of the Governor General and Council, and that in defying the agent, you have literally defied the British government. Moreover, he lamented the Nawab's adherence to Shi'i Muslim rather than Sunni Muslim practice and belief. The Nawab's response to missives such as this from Mackenzie, as well as earlier British agents who paid him insufficient respect, was to limit all further correspondence to the Persian language. The recourse to Persian was not merely a means of insisting on communicating on his own terms. It was also a reminder of the courtly tradition and culture that had long preceded the intrusion of the British. Mackenzie's antagonism was stoked further by this ploy. He informed the Governor-General that it was not possible for him to investigate the Nawab's claims about the misuse of his funds, and declared that, in his view, the assumption by Her Majesty of a direct sovereignty and rule of India leaves His Excellency, the Viceroy, at full liberty to continue, alter, or abolish the hitherto existing relations between the British government and, and the Nawab. Mackenzie's view was fully in line with that of a former Governor-General Dalhousie, and it would be the view informing future viceroys and secretaries of state for India. That gives you in a, in just a small glimpse into this very complex history so beautifully told by Lynn. So now we are open to questions and comments and I, is there a roving mic? Thank you for that. Um, I've got two questions. Firstly, you mentioned the white Australia policy, which I'd never heard of, and uh, I wondered how long that lasted. Right. And secondly, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about combining a writing career with an academic career, which, or how you managed to do that. Okay. Um, well, f first of all, the white Australia policy um, was officially brought in in 1901 when Australia became um, a f federation. Um, and interestingly, it was based on the policy in Natal at the time, um, where, where Gandhi was, <laughs> and it was partly a reaction to Gandhi's efforts in Natal to, um, to, to accept rights, rights for, for people of colored people, as using that particular term there. Um, and Australia's um, brought in a very similar policy, which was um, because um, the Japanese ob objected to this policy of, of, of saying no, no one but Europeans could come into Australia um, and saw this. Um, they brought in a policy, as they had in Natal, um, of using, in fact, a language test. So in in Everybody knew it was a policy to keep out, out anybody who was not European, but the, the pretense was to give a language test which could be in any language the official chose. So, it, you know, if you were um, French, it, or if you, if you were um, Afrikaans speaking, uh, it, it might be in Greek. Yeah, <laughs> so something like that. Similarly to what 
uh, used to happen in the southern states of America when, when, when people tried to vote, black people tried to vote, the language test was a way of, of preventing them from being able to register. But um, so anyway, the, the White Australia policy actually lasted from 1901 to 1973, when it was officially ended um, by Gough Whitlam, the, the one and only um, Australian Prime Minister that anybody has any respect for, <laughs> or anybody should have any respect for. <laughs> and um, then your own career? How and then, do you I'm sorry, the I, missed, I missed the question you gave about my career. Huh? Uh, I, I retired. <laughs> no, I, I, certainly my academic career, which, which involved um, teaching literature from India and Africa and the Caribbean, um, to some extent contributed to, to a kind of providing a kind of context and, and a set of, I suppose, ideas. But, um, but it was only when I retired, which was in, in 2005, that I really could sit down and begin to do serious research for, for this, yeah, <laughs> and, and travel, which was fun. <laughs> was it in 1901 that they decided in Australia that uh, when they were taking the census that they would not include the Aborigines at all? Sorry, the, the, that they would not include the Aborigines, the original uh, settlers yes, uh, in um, Australia, well, just to was, leave them out altogether. That, that in fact, the, the refusal to acknowledge Aborigines as, as even um, part of um, as, uh, living in Australia, as part as part of the population of Australia, um, went went before that, and, but it continued right. Even even further, right up into the 1970s as well, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that that they did not appear on the census; they were just non-people. Mm -hmm. And um, it was the same in Canada, wasn't it? It was only yeah, yeah. after Idi Amin that uh, Canada opened up to non-white settlers. Mm -hmm. So it, it's all this is very recent history. Uh, so thank you for raising that. Yeah. Mm. Any any other questions or comments? Yes. Thank you. Um, you know, in, uh, when archivists, when people are doing research in the archives, they talk about serendipitous finds. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if um, you said that, you know, there, were, that there, was, there was a lot of information already available. Um, but did you come across anything that you weren't expecting that completely transformed the story that you wanted to write? Um, things that I wasn't expecting. That you weren't yeah. expecting, that just, you just sort of um, found them in the archives. Well, I suppose, I mean, letters, letters like the one I read, from, for instance, mm -hmm. just shocked me, <laughs> amazed me. Mm -hmm. So there were things like that. Um, also, you know, some of the, the tutor's reports of, of the Nawab as a child, which, you know, were very moving. They always talk about how, you know, he loved doing Persian calligraphy and, and the tutor says, you know, in his little fingers take the pen and he'll spend hours doing it. And um, another point where the tutor says, you know, he rebelled and again, he was only eight and he said, you know, why should I learn English? My father didn't speak English. My ancestors didn't speak English. Why should I learn English? <laughs> so this eight-year-old child, you know, sort of trying desperately to, his father's just died, you know, and he's just, he's, he's trying to sort of, you know, hold on to 
his his own cultural inheritance. So I thought mm. I found that very moving. The other thing, in a sense, which interested me was what was not in the archives. And for, for instance, the Nawab's favorite wife, his third wife, was actually an African slave mm -hmm. woman. His mother had been one of his mother's slaves. And I hadn't realized that uh, you know, the story of African slavery in India up at uh, that point. And, and um, it's still a topic that I think is vastly under-researched mm -hmm. and vastly unknown. But also, you know, nowhere in any of the genealogical writing about the Nawab's descendants will you find any reference to the fact that they are of African descent, which is, I find, very mm -hmm. interesting, too. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Any other questions, comments? Yes, there's one at the back. Uh, hi, uh, thank you. So I'm just curious because of your rich history, did partition ever affect you, like, or your family? Mm -hmm. Because it seems like a very, from uh, Indian Australia, so I was guessing like whether partition played any kind of role in the sense of your journey or your family's journey? Um, well, partition, uh, partition was certainly affected um, my, I suppose my, I suppose my cousins, I would say, um, a great many of them, because they were, uh, there were two, several stories here. As, as you may know, there were several attempts to divide Bengal. One was back in 1905, um, when the British decided, you know, it was too big and, and it would e be easy to manage if they split it in half. And, and, um, and this was resisted, and one of the Nawab's descendants, who is now the Nawab of Murshidabad, was one of the leading people to resist it. Mm -hmm. and, and so back in, in 1911, it was, in a sense, reunified again. Mm -hmm. But then, um, it, during partition in, in 1947, um, the... the um, <coughs> Um, Bengal was again divided, and and um, for three days, Murshidabad was actually in Pakistan, and and then there was a deal was made with with um, with India about one another state I think it's Khanum was was given to Pakistan, and so Murshidabad got 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 back into India. <laughs> um, and again, the, the, um, the, the, the Nawab's descendants, the Nawab's of Mushirabad, have been very, very strong on insisting that, you know, that Mushirabad and the world is, is, is you know, they've, they've created a Muslim and, and Hindi alliance, which they've promoted very strongly. So that's something I'm proud of. <laughs> so so I'm, oh, I'm pleased to, to see, see what happened. Um, but but yes, um, the, my um, my cousin, my mother's cousin, Iskander Mirza was was and and some of the family went moved to Pakistan, and Iskander Mirza was the first elected president of of Pakistan, and and um, um, although only briefly for because after two years, Ayub Khan engineered a coup, and and that was the end of that story. Yeah. <laughs> Is, is, does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah. But I have cousins now in Pakistan and in, in Bengal, 
um, and on, on both sides, and I'm in correspondence with them. Yeah. Any other questions and comments? I must say that uh, what we what I, I know that right now there's a there's an idea that history should be rewritten. Uh, not necessarily the true history or the whole history. But I, I'd like to stress that uh, in India, the Nawabs were actually sometimes hugely generous in, in, in uh, giving money for the building of Hindu temples and vice versa. Mm -hmm. That is how India was made. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so um, I think this whole idea that there's this clear wedge between Hindus and Muslims is just utter nonsense. Mm -hmm. That's the way I see, read history, and I think Lynn's book really mm -hmm. portrays so, that. One, one of the things that struck me when I first visited Murshidabad was, was you know, just what a multicultural city it was, with these beautiful Sikh temples and Jain temples and you know, Hindu temples as, as well as all the the, the mosques and 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 Jain yeah and Jain yeah mm -hmm. so so that sense that sense of a city that was you know where people lived together and and um, indeed multicultural the Nawab had you know um, Hindi um, accountants and and bankers and and um, and he also had an an Irish coachman. And a Scottish, a Scottish um, commander of, of his guards. So, so it was a, it was a, it was a very interesting sort of multicultural world. That that uh, that um, it wasn't, you know, the British weren't just there as rulers. There were also people who were actually being employed, by by. Yeah, by it was a very in, cosmopolitan in, yeah, society, you know. Yeah, and I think the book brings it out very well, mm -hmm. and. I hope you'll all buy the book and get it signed by <laughs> Lynn. Any more questions or comments? Yes? Yeah. How did um, researching this story change the way that you think about yourself um, in terms of your own identity? My own identity? Um, I, um, I, obviously, uh, I... I mean, as, as a child, I thought of myself as basically Australian, and to some extent, that's how I still think of myself. If, if people say, oh, what are you? I would say Australian. Um, but I think, you know, um, growing up and, and speci specifically um, writing the book made me feel that I was part of Indian history. And that is something I've, I value tremendously. <laughs> and, um, and and uh, you know I like the idea of being cosmopolitan and of of belonging to more than one place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. So can we all come together and thank Cosmopolitan <laughs> Lynn Innes for a wonderful session and for a wonderful book and thank you all for coming. Thank, thank you, Lynn. Thank you. Thank you.